be seated. Welcome to the chapel. If you've never had a chance to meet me, uh, my name is Joe, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here, and I'm the only pastor that looks like this, so if you don't like me, you got to come back one more week, okay? Um, we're, we're in the Christmas season already. I don't know about you, but we had our tree up like two days after Halloween. Uh, what? There's nothing wrong with it, all right? So, uh, but maybe you have Christmas traditions, and maybe your Christmas tradition is just arguing with your relatives. I don't know. I think everybody has that tradition, right? There's always that one contentious person in your family who just wants to talk about contentious stuff at Thanksgiving, and if you're like, no, I don't think so. Maybe you're that person. I don't know. Could be. But uh, uh, traditions, we all have a lot of traditions, and I was thinking about traditions that I had when I was a kid growing up that I, that I loved to do, and I think about you know, all of Christmas, from the lights to the cookies, especially the cookies. Like, my mom makes amazing cutout cookies, and we would make those together, and, you know, like, hers would look perfect, and mine would be like a hot mess, so I always got to eat all of those. Uh, we used to go and pile into our minivan and ride around and look at Christmas lights. I don't know if you still do that, but we still do that at least once a year, and my kids think it's boring, but I absolutely love it. Uh, Christmas Eve has always been my favorite day of the year. I don't know why, but my family, we just always celebrated Christmas on Christmas Eve. Uh, we didn't open up our gifts on Christmas Day. It's so weird, but it was always the same thing. My dad was, would always have to work half a day, and we got home. We'd get to each open up a gift before we uh, got ready to go to my aunt's house, and then we would go to my grandma's, and my grandma had 10 kids, so in her little house, we would just pack everybody in there, all of the aunts and uncles and cousins and we would be eating food and having a gift exchange, and I just absolutely loved that. It was my favorite day of the year. And even still to this day, you know, our family, we, we, you know, with my, with my kids, we do Christmas on Christmas Eve. We, we wake up, and I'll read the story of, of, of the birth of Jesus from the gospel, and we'll open up presents. And then, then now, you know, I spend my day at church with, with all of with our church family, and we love that as well, too. So traditions are really important. The reason I talk about traditions is because the lighting of the Advent candle here at the church is a tradition. And maybe you grew up in a home that had Advent candles or an Advent wreath that had five candles, the one in the middle representing Christ and each other one representing a theme of Christmas. And here at the chapel, each candle represents one word. And today we've lit, in, we've lit the hope candle, so we're going to talk about that. Uh, and these words that we're talking about, hope, peace, joy, and love, they can all be found in Christmas carols. And I don't know what your favorite Christmas carol is. Here's a list. It came upon a midnight clear. Hark the herald angels sing. Joy to the world. O come all ye faithful. While shepherds watch their flocks. Away in a manger. Silent night. O holy night. O little town of Bethlehem. I think my favorite off this list is O holy night. But my favorite Christmas song of all time, I listened to it on the way to church this morning, is Blue Christmas by Elvis Presley. I think that the Elvis Christmas album is the greatest Christmas album of all time. Is there anybody else? Okay, thank you. Yes, it's amazing, all right? And if you don't like it, I'm sorry, you're wrong. But each of these carols, we find at least one of these four Advent words, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so I want to talk about hope, and I want to ask you this question. Just dream with me for a minute. What if we had more hope? What if you had more hope in your life? Would your life be better and why is hope a theme of Christmas? Why do we even need hope? Well, um, because things are tough, right? Life is hard. We've all had some very difficult years these past few years. And I don't think I need to tell you that. 
And it's too easy during times like that to fall into despair and to hopelessness. Well, why is hope the first candle that we, that we light? That we light? And I would argue that it's hard to have any of the other three words, peace, joy, and love, without hope. It's hard to experience peace with God, peace with others, without hope, without the hope that God actually exists and is following through on his promises. Without hope, it's hard to know joy. Without hope, it's hard to look beyond yourself and to love other people. And there's a lot of definitions about hope. If you went out and surveyed 100 people to define hope, you'd probably get 50 different answers. But a good one is this. Hope is confident expectation. You know, you might have hope for your kids, hope for your health, hope related to your job, hope for a nice family Christmas, hope for the Browns, let's stop there, right? Our, you, our, but because our hopes are based on some evidence that would lead you to confidently expect a certain outcome or what you hope for. And the Christmas season is about hope, hope in God, the hope of a savior, that God would send a savior to our world to rescue us, that hope of a savior that became reality in a little town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. So what if, again, dream with me for a second, if, what if we had more hope? Would your life be better? Well, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that speak about hope, and the one that we want to focus on today is from Hebrews chapter 6. So if you want to read along in your Bibles, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 6 if you'd like to use the YouVersion app. We'll also have the text on the screen for you as well. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20, and we're going to read the entire passage And then after that, I'm going to give you some background information, some context to it. So this is how our passage goes. It says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God had promised. Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. All right, so some context on this. Why does the author of Hebrews write these words? Well, the author of the book of Hebrews, which we're not really sure of, there's still some debate on who actually wrote it. The letter was originally sent to Jewish Christians who were facing severe persecution for believing what they believed. I mean, we heard about it all through the book of Acts, that there were Christians who were being persecuted, who were being imprisoned, who were forced to leave their towns. Some were even being murdered for their faith. And they're, excuse me, they're they're trying to follow Jesus, and they're paying a very steep price for their faith. To say the the least, life life was incredibly difficult for them. And it was as a result of this hardship, some of these Christians were starting to fall away. They were starting to pull back. They were starting to lean away from God. And shrink back is a phrase that was used to, to show that they were withdrawing from God. In short, they were losing hope. They were losing hope in God. This confident expectation that they had in God 
was being replaced by fear, by hopelessness. And so we find in the book of Hebrews this constant theme of of the author saying, don't fall away, don't drift back, don't shrink back, don't give up hope in God. Don't give up hope. And maybe today you find yourself at a point where you wonder where, where God has gone, why all of this has happened to me. Because I don't know what is going on in your life. I don't know what your week looked like, right? Maybe you had a great week, or maybe you're an Ohio State fan. I like football. Okay, but, but like maybe you had a great week, maybe it was bad. Maybe you're going through the worst time of your life right now and you, you just don't understand. You think, well, if God is good and if God loves me, then why are all these things happening? And perhaps that causes you to lean away from God. You're ready to give up, to, you're losing hope. And if it's not happening now, perhaps it has happened or unfortunately the reality is a time will probably come when you deal with those things. And yet, this, this passage, written for persecuted Christians, was also written for us today. And the author gives us three reasons why we can live with hope. And the first one is this, is that we are not without examples. Leading up to the passage are these words in the chapter, or the verse before. It says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So two words really deserve our attention in this. And the first one is lazy, which is sometimes translated as dull or even slothful. And if someone lets you down, it's, it's, easy, it's not uncommon to become less drawn to that person. You know, if somebody you love, somebody close to you, does something where, that causes you to lose trust in that person, oftentimes, even without you knowing, a wall goes up. You know, somebody, if somebody does something that harms you, you know, you're counting on that person. They don't follow through in some big way. You tend to pull away. You tend to protect yourself. You might pull away emotionally, maybe physically, right? Why do we do that? Because we don't want to get hurt again, so we start putting up barriers to, around ourselves. We start distancing ourselves, and the same thing can happen with God. When we have certain expectations for God, <clears throat> and he doesn't meet those expectations, what happens? We tend to fall away. Christ, Quite frankly, when life becomes hard, when we feel like God has let us down or hasn't come through, it, it's, it's possible to find ourselves less drawn to God, maybe bored with God, lazy towards God, shrinking back from God, and you start losing hope. And the author could see this happening in his readers, and sometimes we can see it happening ourselves. And so the second word that he uses that we want to focus on is imitate. <clears throat> the author is telling his readers and telling us the way out of spiritual malaise and apathy, a key out of getting, to getting out of neutral or even reverse in your relationship with God, is to, and the way to keep hope in, in God alive is to imitate, <clears throat> excuse me, imitate someone who has demonstrated hope in God. And for the Jewish Christians he was writing to, that person was Abraham. Again, this is how our passage um, is. It says, for example, there was God's promise to Abraham. Since there was no one greater to swear by, God took an oath in his own name, saying, I will certainly bless you, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number. Then Abraham waited patiently, and he received what God has promised. Now, maybe you know the story of Abraham, maybe you don't. It's, it's way too much to get into completely, but just a little bit of it briefly. From Genesis chapter 12 onward, we learn that out of God's grace alone, God chose Abraham and called him to a new land and then promised him and his barren wife, who were both very old at the time, a child. And they waited 25 years to the, until the birth of Isaac. 
And through all these years of trial and temptations, Abraham ultimately did not give up hope. And if anybody had a reason to give up hope, it was Abraham. I mean, 25 years for God to come through on his promise? The opposite of being lazy, he waited patiently for God. He pushed through the quitting points, believing God would come through on his promise. Right, but there's that word in there, waiting. Waiting is hard, right? We don't like, we don't like waiting. There's a book called The Four-Hour Workweek. I'm like, yeah, I could do that, you know? Four hours? Could you imagine condensing 40 hours down into four hours? Man, that, that's my style. There's probably a book out there or a magazine article or an internet blog that's, you know, 28 days to a new physique. Hey, thanks. 28 days to a new physique. You'll probably never see a book called Five Years to a New Physique, even though that's a lot more realistic. Uh, it, but, but nobody wants to wait for that. Let me ask you this. Raise your hand if you own an air fryer. Yeah, if you don't know what an air fryer is, it's the new microwave. And uh, my wife was like, oh, I want to cook salmon in the air fryer. And I was like, why can't you just cook it in an oven or a grill like a normal person? She goes, well, it's faster. And I'm like, how soon do you need to eat salmon? Like, are you just like, if I don't get salmon in seven minutes, I'm going to lose it. So we don't like waiting, right? We don't like it. There's this verse and it was shared with me by a student that I met with a few days ago, and it's from Isaiah chapter 60, verse 22. And, and God says this through Isaiah. He says, the smallest family will become a thousand people, and the tiniest group will become a mighty nation. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. So in other words, he's saying to his people in the middle of the consequences and effect of sin that's going on all around them, he says, trust me. I'm going to bring an end to all of this. I'm going to restore you to myself. There's going to be a day when sin and all of its effects are going to be no more. So trust in me. I am the Lord. And when it's time, I will make it happen. But we have to be willing to wait and trust in God in the process. But there's others to imitate besides Abraham. Others in the Bible, maybe even others in our own life. You know, when I think of people to imitate, it's, it's hard to not just talk about Todd Enderley. I mean, when 3,000 people show up to your visitation, you did something, you made an impact in your life. And, and, and Todd would be the first one to say, it's not about him, it's about Jesus, who he was following. And J Todd was trying to point people to Jesus. But, but I look at Todd's life and I'm like, okay, I want to live like that. And maybe there's somebody in your life it might, it might be um, a, a father, a mother, a coworker, a sibling, a grandparent, a neighbor, or somebody else who has gone through some of the most difficult times and they did not pull back from God. They did not give up hope. They kept following. And the author says to imitate those who have demonstrated hope in God. Why? Because they're, they're, they're a reflection of Jesus, not a reflection of themselves. So we have reasons for hope, and the second one is this, that we have a God who cannot lie. Hebrews 16, 18, or 6, 16 through 18 says, Now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. So God has given both his promise and his oath these two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Do you see that? It says it's impossible for God to lie. 
what hope do we have if we know that God can't even keep his promises? And we're very familiar with the idea of lying. And maybe, you know, around this time of year, you rely on a certain bearded fat man with reindeer to do some of your parenting. You know, you might see your, your kids are messing up and you're like, hey, if you guys don't knock it off, I'm gonna make a call to the North Pole, right? So, so maybe we, we tell some things that are maybe we seem harmless. We are all familiar. We've all told a white lie before, which is still a lie. We know that Satan is called the father of lies and he seeks to undo us with lies. We've all been lied to in some places, in some instances quite deeply by someone we trusted. It might have been a close friend, a family member, maybe the church, and if that's happened to you, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. And we know that not lying is important. We know that keeping a promise is important. You know, when my wife stood up here in front of Pastor Dave and in front of our friends and family, but most importantly in front of God, we took an oath, we took a promise. We made ourselves accountable to all who were present, but ultimately to God. Or when you take an oath in a court of law, with your left hand on the Bible and your right hand raised, what do you say? I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Why is so help me God at a swearing in? Why? Because it brings into the equation someone who is far greater. <clears throat> someone who is positionally and rightfully able to hold everyone and anyone accountable. Someone, is, someone who is incapable of lying. So... It is impossible for God to lie. That means that God can, has to, and will keep his promises. He is the ultimate promise keeper, someone who can be trusted, hoped in. Your confidence in God is well-founded. So let me pause here and just ask a couple questions because I think there might be some questions that you're thinking. The first one is, what does this example of Abraham have to do with us today? What does God's promise to Abraham have to do with me? And what does God's ability, inability to lie matter to my life? And actually, what does this story even have to do with Christmas? Well, the book of Hebrews is often called the book of better things. Why is that? Because God promised more than just a child to Abraham. God promised something better, or should we say someone better. Through Abraham and through Sarah's offspring would eventually come the one who would bless all nations, all people groups, making a way back to God for all people. Again, back to Isaiah 60, 22, he said, at the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. God did not lie. God kept his promise. And through Abraham's lineage came a savior and they named him Jesus. And that was the promise that God kept that we celebrate at Christmas the hope of the world, not, and not just the hope of the world, but the anchor for our souls, which is reason three, that we have an anchor for the soul. Again, back to Hebrews. It says, therefore, we who have fled to him, to Jesus, for refuge, can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary, Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. You have a hope that is a trustworthy and strong anchor for your soul. What does this mean? Well, first of all, you're probably like, wait, Melchizedek who? Yeah, Melchizedek. All right, uh, remember, the author is writing to Jewish Christians who would have known the name Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a rather 
mysterious high priest in Abraham's day and sort of a foreshadowing figure of Christ. And once the official Jewish system, had, sacrifice system, had been set up under Moses, the high priest was allowed into the inner sanctuary of the Jewish tabernacle or temple behind the curtain to offer God a sacrifice for the sins of all people. And he did it once, he did this once per year and he had to do it every year. Year after year after year after year. And the author is telling us that when Jesus died on the cross as the great high priest for all people for all time, he took, his sin, he took our sins on himself on the cross, taking our place, being our substitute, eliminating the sacrificial system, giving, being, being the final sacrifice for all people once and for all. And just as Abraham was made right with God because of his hope and faith in God, so a person who puts their hope and faith in Jesus is made right with God. Now, did you know that down throughout history, anchors have been a symbol of the Christian faith? I have an anchor tattoo. I'm sure you're surprised. But I got this because I love that verse in Hebrews that talks about this hope that we have being a strong um, and firm anchor for our souls. If you go into Roman catacombs, there's images of, of anchors there. If, on the tombs of early Christians, you'll find images of anchors. Why? Because they knew what sailors had known all along. The anchors provide stability, they provide security, and they provide safety. So, using that anchor metaphor, this Christmas, this season, this Advent season, if the currents of, of change in our world and in your life are, are causing you to fear what is ahead, I want you to know that your hope in God is a firm anchor for your soul. Are the waves of pain or problems crashing against your life, I want you to know that you have an anchor for your soul. Are the winds of life blowing you off course, unexpected things that, that have happened, you still have an anchor for your soul. And if you're a human and you're losing hope because we all have gone through this or will gone through this, go through this, you have an anchor for your soul. The author of Hebrews pleads with his, with his readers and with us to not lose hope, to not shrink back, to not drift away, to not give up hope. To lean into this trustworthy God who does not lie. To look to the examples of those who have, who have kept hope in God. To look and to rely on the one true hope who is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. Really, that's what Christmas is about. Christmas is about hope. The hope, that God's, the hope that God promised that came true through Jesus. And you might be here this morning and you might just be checking this whole thing out. Maybe a friend invited you. Maybe your parents forced you to come. Maybe you're just exploring this whole Jesus thing, but you're not really sure about all of this. And I just want you to know that we are so grateful that you are here. This, this is a place for you to come and to wrestle through your questions and to wrestle through your doubts and you may be totally, this, this idea of hope in Jesus or hope in God may be totally, you know, foreign to you. And here's what, here's what I want you to know. Here's, here's, here's why Christmas is so important. Because we believe, and God's word teaches us, that God made every single one of us, you, me, every single person that has ever lived, to be in a loving relationship with God. But you see, starting with the very first people that God created, every single one of us has through our actions, through our attitudes, through our words, turned our backs on God. 
and said, God, you know what? You can go kick rocks. We want to be in charge of our life. Every single person. And, and God, if he was going to be fair, could have looked at our world, could have looked at every single one of us and wiped his hands clean and said, fine, you're on your own. And we would have gotten what we deserved, every single one of us, which is eternal separation from God, what Jesus talked about is hell. But God wasn't fair. You know, people say, well, well, God isn't fair. Well, that's good, because if God was fair, none of us would have a chance. God wasn't fair. God was filled with grace and mercy and love. And the Father looked at you, and he looked at me, and he loved you and me so much that he was willing to send his son, Jesus, to be born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, what we celebrate at Christmas. And this Jesus, he lived a perfect life in perfect communion with the Father, and he went to the cross. He humbled himself to die on a cross to be our, to be our, our, our replacement. And, and Jesus went around through his life, and he was saying some crazy stuff, right? He said, he said in, in the book of John, he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father except through me. Maybe you've seen that billboard on 250. And so essentially what he was saying is he said, hey, I'm the one. I'm the only way to God. He was claiming to be God himself. And so if somebody claims that, They've got to do something to back it up because they're either crazy, they're lying, or they're right. And so Jesus did back it up. The, the last week of his life, he marched into Jerusalem. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, and he marched into Jerusalem and pulled it off. He died on a cross to be the payment for our sins, and three days later, he came back to life. And when a guy who says he's God and then comes back to life proves it, I'm going to be on that guy's team. And the book of Romans, chapter 10, verse 9, says this, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. That's Christmas. The word became flesh. God's promise came true, and we have hope in that. That's the hope that we celebrate at Christmas. And so, today... I just want to give you that opportunity. I want to pray for us, but I also want to give you that opportunity that if you've never experienced that real hope, that if you've never believed in this Jesus who gave his life for you because he loves you so much, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And after I pray, we'll dismiss, and, and, and I don't want you to leave today if you still have questions, if you still have doubts. I don't want you to leave with those. So I would encourage you to just, I'll be up here after the service, and I just want you to, you can come up and talk to me, and I'll answer any questions you have. And that might be the scariest thing you could ever think of, but that fear may be God tugging on your heart, telling you to take that step. So let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the real hope that we have in you, the confident hope, the anchor for our souls. God, that's what Christmas is about. It can mean so many things. It can be about food. It can be about music. It can be about tradition. But God, ultimately it is about hope. That hope that became true in Jesus. And God, there may be some here this morning who don't know that hope, who have never experienced that hope. And I just ask that you would open their hearts this morning. And so if that's you this morning, I'm just going to pray here, and all I want you to do is just repeat the words, and I'm going to pray, and you can pray them silently in your heart. God hears them. So if that's you, just pray this. God, I believe that I'm broken, that I'm fallen, that I'm a sinner. And I believe that you loved me so much that you sent your son 
and, th- and that, th- that he gave his life for me on the cross. And that he came back to life to show that his death was, was a payment, that it was valid. And so, God, I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. Jesus, that you would come into my heart and that you would be the leader of my life, that you would be my Savior and my Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you so much for being here today with us. We hope you enjoy your week, and we'll see you next Sunday.